0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malih Razazan.
1: The system just fell apart. It took years. There was different types of crises during the civil war, after the civil war, and then again in 2019. So it's going to be very difficult to rebuild Lebanon based on that same system, philosophy, and structure that it had before. I think it needs to have a productive economy, not one just based on services and crony capitalism, because that's what it was based on before.
0: This week, we speak with Lebanese activist and academic Rayan El Amin about the political and economic crisis in Lebanon. We will also celebrate Poetry Month with Iraqi poet Sinan Antoun, reading some of his translations of the works of celebrated Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. Stay with us. Over the past few years, the beleaguered country of Lebanon has been in social and economic upheaval, forcing many of its citizens into international exile in search of basic economic survival. Khalil Bendib spoke with Lebanese activist and academic Ryan El Amin who after a decade in his native land, has returned to the Bay Area with his family about the travails of a country that is diminutive in size, but has always loomed large in the conscience of the world.
2: On August 4th, 2020, a gigantic catastrophic explosion in the port of Beirut shocked the nation, exposing many of the dysfunctionalities in Lebanon's government. This came as a dramatic exclamation point for the deleterious state of affairs in the country, which was already suffering from years of political chaos, economic disrepair. In the meantime, after what have seemed to be repeated high-level interventions to block an impartial investigation, what is the current status of the investigation, and who is suspected to be responsible for that huge fiasco? And are they being prosecuted as we speak?
1: My perspective in terms of this explosion in the port, which was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in modern history that happened right there in the port of Beirut, the assumption is that there might not be people held accountable uh, after almost three years now of the court system trying to get at who was responsible. but. In general, lots of people are responsible, and a lot of them are people in power. They're part of the political system. They're part of the security system. And as a result of the Lebanese government and the the way it functions, those people are very much protected by the judiciary. So the judiciary doesn't have a whole lot of power to hold security services that were in charge of port security or the safety people that were in the Ministry of Social Public Works, all the different ministries, and there's several that are responsible for the security and the safety of the port. And even though some middle functionaries were, for a period of time, were put in jail, now it seems like there's going to be a continued process that might end up not really holding anybody of high level accountable. So it's a cherry on top of a very dysfunctional system, this explosion, as I called it, and it's not something that I feel is going to get resolved through the judiciary in Lebanon.
2: So in the beginning, there were vague suspicions of an attack by Israel. It was such a huge, huge explosion. As you mentioned before the interview, it's probably the largest non-nuclear explosion in modern history. But very quickly, it seemed obvious there was just a fiasco. Tell us a little bit what happened with the type of chemicals that were being stored and how these ended up exploding, very briefly.
1: The details are that there was explosives that were being stored in the port, and this is as a result of not going to too much details, as a result of this ship that ended up not being able to continue on to where it was taking these explosives. And so things, they were stored in the port of Lebanon. And when some welders came in to do some work on the storage area, they ignited the explosives and it created this huge effect, obviously, explosion in the port of Lebanon. So the details are pretty clear. It has to do with the lack of safety and security protocols and the lack of accountability in a very dysfunctional country. This is a country that in a lot of ways, as a result of the sectarian system, has people that are in charge that are very inept. They're not really qualified to do their job. And Most of the people that are in charge, whether it's the port or the ministries, they're more interested in how they're going to benefit politically and the corrupt culture they're involved in as a result of having a certain position in government. So
2: after the catastrophic explosion, which forced the resignation of then Prime Minister Hassan Diab's government... Lebanon went without a fully empowered government until a new cabinet of 24 ministers, headed by billionaire businessman Najib Mikati, was announced by the president's office more than a year later in September 2021. And after a long impasse, ministers were handpicked by the same politicians who have ruled the country for the past several decades and whose corruption and mismanagement are blamed for the country's current crisis. The Lebanese, and certainly you, seem also really tired of this continual game of musical chairs, and yet the country seems utterly unable to get past this political deadlock. What is keeping Lebanon from breaking free of this intractable situation? And explain to us a little bit how this confessional system of government works.
1: So, The confessional system is one based on the religious and sectarian background of the person in order to have a position in government. For example, the president of Lebanon has to be a Maronite Christian, representative of the Maronite or the Christians in general in Lebanon. The prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim, and that prime minister heads the cabinet of ministers. And it's probably the, the most powerful executive position. And the Speaker of the House has to be Shia. And so as a result of kind of this breakdown of government based on sectarian background, as opposed to merit or qualifications, it creates a, a very number one crony kind of relationship to the ministries. That means you're in a position to help and support your people, whether they're Shia or Sunni, and you're not there to have services for the Lebanese people or Lebanese citizens. So it creates a lot of situations for corruption, for patronage. That means that there's contracts for these ministries that end up just benefiting the person that's in power. And as a result, the Lebanese government and its services are extremely dysfunctional. The fact that it's been so resilient, this system, this confessional system, is as a result of it being there for so long. I mean, the people that are in power today were the same people that took Lebanon to a civil war in the 70s and 80s that lasted for 15 years. Most of those militia leaders, and they were leaders in militias, they're leaders of, you know, whether it's the head of the Druze or head of the Shias or head of the groups that the fact is, is that in the end, they only have a real commitment to those people. But the reality is, is that uh, there was protest fatigue when there was eventually the majority of people that were sick of the system went out in the streets in October, 2019 majority of Lebanese across Different sects, different classes, young people, old people went out to protest and to get rid of this system, get rid of the the corrupt leaders. But it it seemed like they waited them out. The existing system is able to do that. There was definitely protest fatigue, but there was also no program that was strong enough or clear enough by the opposition, by the people in the streets to replace the existing program. They were unable to present something that can actually work in Lebanon. And there wasn't a whole lot of clarity. And slowly, even the protest movement started falling apart, of course, after a few years. And even though there's still labor strikes, there's still teachers going out on strike because of wages and conditions in the country. Right now, the economic conditions are horrific. There is inflation that's close to 95%. Hospital workers, all civil servants have been out on strike. Their wages are worth absolutely nothing now $20 a month. Somebody that used to make $1,500 a month now makes less than $50 a month. And it's hard to live on that in a place like Lebanon.
2: Yeah, I won't come back to the inflation problem, but this problem has been multi generational. We have leaderships and all these different sects that. Are handed down to their children. Right. Whose idea was it to install such a system, historically speaking?
1: Historically speaking, I mean, Lebanon was a French mandate. It was a mandate like a colony of France. And France and the colonial powers in Britain after the First World War had divided up the Middle East, as we all know, into the different countries that exist today Syria Jordan Palestine Lebanon and had been in charge of those countries France was in charge of Lebanon and uh, there's a majority or there was a majority or a, a large minority of Christians within the borders of Greater Lebanon and the idea was to make sure that some of these minorities including the Christian minorities had positions in government and be able to Serve and protect their own people, and in Lebanon there's many different confessions and groups. Around 18, we're talking about Armenians, Greek Orthodox, Shia, Sunni. So some of it is ethnic, but it's mostly religious groups. So they divided up the power in the country based on the religious background. And this is a system that, in the end, creates a lot of competition with different groups, created civil wars in 58 and 75, and it creates a very dysfunctional government as far as delivering services to its people and creates corruption. So this is a post-colonial state that never really functioned properly, is very prone to these crises, whether political or economic. And in the end, the Lebanese people haven't been served well. There's no public schools, no public hospitals. Infrastructure hasn't been invested in. There's no electricity to speak of after apparently billions of dollars spent on the electricity sector over the the last 30 years. So this is the system that we have now. This is the system that Lebanese protesters tried to overthrow and up until now, haven't been able to.
2: And yet, I remember in the 60s and early 70s, your country, Lebanon, having this image as a harbor of peace. They called it the Switzerland of the Middle East. And now it was relatively successful and prosperous. But now inflation, as you were saying, by some accounts, soared to 124% in January, and rising 20% in one single month led by education, yeah. education, health, restaurant, hotel prices, as well as rising food, water, and energy costs. The economic meltdown, which began in October 2019 and is rooted in decades, as you were saying, of corruption and mismanagement by the political class, has plunged more than 75% by some account of this nation's population of 6 million into poverty. This is a population legendary for its entrepreneurial genius, generating countless millionaires and billionaires all over the world. What has caused this recent catastrophic meltdown? I mean, given all that you've already said about the dysfunctionality, until the last few years, it was functioning somewhat. What has provoked this recent catastrophic meltdown in the past
1: few years? I think to get into all the details would be difficult, but let's see this last phase of the Lebanese economic system since 1990, since after the civil war, when Rafiq Hariri took over and installed the current governor of the central bank, Riyad Salemi, Into power, they build an economic system based on, in the end, what looked like a Ponzi scheme in a lot of ways. I mean, that's what it's been called by the the World Bank. It's not me saying that, in in the sense that you used banks to bring in a lot of deposits from the Lebanese, the entrepreneurial Lebanese you talked about. A lot of them are successful business people all over the world, had deposited their money in the Lebanese banks at high interest rates. The governor of the central bank had facilitated a deal where he would also lend lots of money to this corrupt government that ended up squandering the money that was being lent. And meanwhile, you're able to prop up the currency because of all this hard currency deposits in the Lebanese banks for many years. And he kept on being able to do this up until 2019, when the Ponzi scheme kind of just fell apart. So lots of people are accountable as far as the failed economic system, but it's it's based on corruption, corruption at the very top. Right now, Riyad Salemi, the governor of the central bank in Lebanon, is being investigated by five European countries for embezzlement of public funds, him and his brother, and the guy is still in his position as the governor of the central bank, Riyad Salemi, is being investigated by these European countries for embezzlement of $300 million that he embezzled from public funds in Lebanon. So it's a very corrupt system, even though Lebanon was seen as prosperous in the 60s and even early 70s, it was kind of this sheen but if you looked you know on the outside it's it's a shiny beautiful place to visit there's freedom of speech there's all this kind of tourism that was happening there in lebanon it's a beautiful country but there was always inequality in the country there was always a neoliberal kind of perspective that did not serve everybody and eventually the system just fell apart. and It took years. There was different types of crises during the Civil War, after the Civil War, and then again in 2019. So it's going to be very difficult to rebuild Lebanon based on that same system, philosophy, and structure that it had before. I think it needs to have a productive economy, not one just based on services and crony capitalism, because that's what it was based on before.
2: And what sect is Riyad Salami? Is that relevant to the problem? Is he being protected by one faction or the other in government?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. He's actually being protected by most of the leaders, and not necessarily just his sect, the Christians. In fact, some of the Christian parties don't like him, but he is Christian. And that position, as you've pointed out, historically has been somebody from the Christian Maronite community. And he's being protected by the bosses in the Shia community, in the Sunni community, and all the other, the business class from across the country. So, because I think they know if he falls, they're going to be vulnerable.
2: He's been, as you're saying, he's been charged with embezzling public funds. He and his brother and another associate. Embezzling public funds, forgery, illicit enrichment, money laundering. In violation of tax laws. He deserves to be a member of uh, Trump's government, if we have a second government, God forbid.
1: It's, it's uh, unbelievable that somebody like that is still holding a position of the governor of the central bank after this crisis and after all these accusations and investigations into his management and his corruption.
2: This at a time when average citizens have in desperation started to actually rob banks where they have deposits to access their own funds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's sad. So as a result of the banks not allowing people to withdraw specifically their dollar or hard currency deposits, you know, the Lebanese have been suffering and and the banks are able to do this because the government allows them to.
2: The costs of water, electricity, gas, and other fuels increased 163% annually, forcing many Lebanese to improvise and customize their access to energy. Some residents, according to an article I read in Financial Times, some residents have even found innovative Artisanal ways to tap into solar energy bypassing the traditional providers. Tell us more about this situation.
1: As a result of the state not being able to provide 24 hours electricity, the Lebanese have to obviously find different ways. And in order to at least get a minimum amount of electricity through generators, solar power, and sometimes in house batteries, you actually have car batteries or truck batteries in your house to run your lights, at least they're being charged. When you do have electricity by the government and those batteries then serve you. So there's ingenious ways, but it's a terrible way to live. The crisis of electricity has been something going on for years since the end of the civil war in the nineties. Even Beirut has never had 24 hour electricity. When I lived there, for about 15 years, and in the last 15 years, we would have to figure out different ways. We had a generator in the building that would be on for part of the time. You would have a battery, like I said, for the times that you just need to have the lights on. And then you would make sure that you would use the government or state electricity to do the wash and, and all the heavy kind of electrical use, things that you have to do domestically. But in the end, everybody's now beginning to get, including in my apartment in Beirut, we're going to get solar panels that have become cheap enough to install. Also, water needs electricity to be pumped in addition to just mismanagement and bad infrastructure. So they obviously don't have ways to capture. We get enough rain in Lebanon to definitely meet the needs of the Lebanese, but the government hasn't built the infrastructure to be able to store the water when the rain does come. So we have water problems and we end up having to buy water all summer long from private contractors that will come and pump water into your tanks.
2: Uh, Lebanon's economy contracted, according to uh, some reports by 58% 58% between 2019 and 2021 which is catastrophic it's worse than the great depression that happened here 80 years ago with gdp falling to 21 billion dollars in 2021 from about 52 in 2019 this is according to the world bank the largest contraction on the list of 193 countries the economic paralysis has led to a surge in unemployment with more than half the population sliding below the national poverty line. Some people say half, some people say 75%. And waves of citizens leaving the country. Where are these people going?
1: I could be an example myself. Anybody that has another citizenship like myself will leave the country after such a catastrophic economic and social crisis in Lebanon. So we were in Lebanon For 13 years from 2008. And we left in 2021, about two years after the economic crisis had started, where the quality of life for my family and I definitely went way down. So Lebanese have historically been migrated to other places for jobs because of political crises in Lebanon. So there's millions of Lebanese, much more Lebanese outside the country there than there is in the country. So they have dual citizenship, lots of Lebanese do, Lebanon, South America, Europe, and the Gulf countries. They don't have citizenship in the Gulf countries, but they work in the Gulf countries, and they send remittances to Lebanon. And that's been kind of part of the, the problem also, because the country has survived on those remittances. It hasn't survived because it has a productive economy. People argument their salaries and their standard of living as a result of relatives and uh, working overseas and bringing money back into the country and into the economy.
2: Even yeah. West Africa has a lot of Lebanese traditionally who've been leaders in industry and, and trade. So it yes. have been all over the world. It's one of the few countries in the world where there are more citizens more people outside the country than inside the country themselves. There are wow. about 6 million in Lebanon. How many are outside?
1: I think there's over 12 million that are outside that have Lebanese uh, citizenship. An example is just one city in Brazil, Sao Paulo, that had a bunch of Lebanese immigrate to Brazil in the 50s and 60s, has over a million ethnic Lebanese, just one city in Brazil. Those aren't citizens, but they're ethnic Lebanese. So yeah, there's definitely a lot more Lebanese outside the country than in Lebanon. And the 6 million that are in Lebanon that you mentioned, around 2 million, are refugees, either Palestinian or Syrian, mostly Syrian That's right. uh, refugees that have come to Lebanon since the Syrian civil war. And then there is about... Four and a half million Lebanese that are in Lebanon, but a lot of them do work outside of Lebanon, and they come back and forth.
2: What is said is that many of these Lebanese, like yourself, who went back to Lebanon, were intent on helping the country and saying we're not going to do what happened in Palestine, where Palestinians have lost their country, essentially, and they're struggling mightily to regain something. They've seen what happened to the south. And Lebanese are saying that's not going to happen to us. We're not going to empty the country of our talent and our energy. And yet it keeps happening. People are forced to leave the country again and again.
1: Exactly. We love Lebanon. Lots of Lebanese have all sorts of kind of romanticized ideas about their homeland. And we all end up going there to visit, even if we're away. And, and families like mine went to, to live there. And like you said, reclaim our lives there by going to the village and being around family and having jobs in Lebanon. I worked at the American University of Beirut for 10 years and I hoped that I would retire there. But uh, in the end, even if I wanted to live there and raise my family there, it wasn't going to be possible under these conditions. And Lebanon as a state always rejects you, You know, sends you back and Unfortunately, because of its dysfunctionality and problems.
2: And this is not, unfortunately, unique to Lebanon. Many countries in the Middle East and North Africa region have the same dilemma. A lot of uh, countries reject their own people. Algerians try to go back to Algeria and stand there for a few months, a few years, and they go right back to wherever they were more economically stable. Right and politically yeah. able to express themselves, etc. So while thousands of Lebanese flee the dire economic straits of their country, at the same time, Lebanon, as you were alluding to, is hosting some 800,000 registered Syrian refugees and potentially hundreds of thousands more who are not registered. The highest population of refugees per capita in the world, barnan Notwithstanding the fact that Lebanon was once part of Syria and that the two peoples are closely related, how has this situation affected the social and economic fabric of Lebanon in the past 10, 12 years?
1: It's a complex issue where obviously the Syrians that had come to Lebanon didn't do it on their own to just, they they were pushed out as a result of war and an oppressive government. And they were refugees in Lebanon. They had been coming to Lebanon for many years, the Syrians, as construction workers, seasonal workers and such. So like you said, Lebanon and Syria been integrated for many years socially, economically, and politically. At one point, Lebanon was kind of a vassal state as far as Syria being in charge. But recently, the issue with refugees has been a big issue. Economically, the country cannot sustain having that many refugees. It can't even provide services for its own citizens. And now you add uh, 30, 40 percent more people. So it creates social problems and it creates a lot of racism towards, uh, not justified, but there is a scapegoating of Syrian refugees by Lebanese and by Lebanese right-wing political parties that blame the Syrians for the economic and social woes of Lebanon. And sometimes they blame them for security issues and criminality and such. So obviously, there's a lot of tension between Some Lebanese and the Syrians, as we all know in these situations, the Syrians are not to blame. They're not there on their own accord. They they can't go back. And the situation is such that they have to compete with other working class Lebanese, other migrants for basic jobs and, uh, and being able to kind of just survive in Lebanon during this time.
2: Uh, speaking of Brazil, which you are talking about earlier regarding immigration and development of a huge community there, another internationally famous top official escaping justice, who's not just Lebanese, but also French and Brazilians, Carlos Rossin, who fled from uh, Japanese justice a couple of years ago in a shipping crate <laughs> and ended up in Beirut, where he is being shielded by the local authorities... Why would Lebanon protect
1: such an international
2: pariah and lose credibility, or or is it just because he's
1: a Lebanese brother? He was the uh, CEO of Nissan, so he's somebody that uh, had lots of power and has lots of money. And in a corrupt country like Lebanon, you, you can always find protection if you're powerful and you have money, and he obviously has connections in Lebanon and is running away from the court system. And Khosun ran away from indictments in Japanese court. And so he had to leave or he was going to end up in jail for corruption. So because of his Lebanese roots, he came to Lebanon, and he's being protected by the government in the sense that they're not going to send him back to Japan to face his legal problems there.
2: So despite the economic crisis in Lebanon, countries elite have yet to enforce structural and financial reforms required by the IMF to unlock a $3 billion packet of assistance, which would also pave the way for an additional $11 billion that has been pledged by international donors at the Paris conference in 2018. How is the prospect of foreign funding looking at the moment, and how important do you feel it might be in helping the situation, or is was that just a Band-Aid, considering the depth of the problems?
1: In the end, it is a Band-Aid as far as the amount of money. The $3 billion is not very much at all. Also, I think it's over three years or something like that, that the IMF thinks that it will be able to provide to Lebanon if Lebanon does certain reforms, which the government hasn't been able to do set regulatory boards, be able to cut down on corruption, create more efficient government services, all the things that the Lebanese government has been unable to do for many years. And despite being in this deep, deep economic crisis, the caretaker government, the Mikati that's in charge now, has been unable to do any of the reforms. And one of the major reforms is actually uh, reforming the banking sector, which is even more difficult because it seems like the banking sector is stronger than the government. So it's it's very difficult to think that somehow the government's going to be able to reform the banking sector. So that's one part of the IMF loan, but it's supposed to, like you said, open up the door for other aid, international aid from France and Saudi Arabia and other countries that said that they would help out. But at this point, it's been about two years where the IMF has had this offer on the table. And it seems to be less and less likely it's going to happen anytime soon. And when it does happen, it's too little too late, I think, to do anything major to shift things in Lebanon economically.
2: At the height of Lebanon's economic meltdown, French President Emmanuel Macron made a much publicized trip to Lebanon, ostensibly to help the country, while simultaneously reminding it and the world of the special relationship tying the two countries, France having been instrumental in creating the modern independent Lebanese state by prying it from the land of Syria. Tell us about your reaction as a Lebanese citizen to that intervention and the symbolism of it by the former colonial overlord.
1: Yeah, it seems like uh, President Macron has seen Lebanon as a French colony that he still wants to support in different ways and has also come in to try to resolve some of the issues, vacuums in the presidency, vacuums in the prime ministership. And after the explosion, he came to support the Lebanese during the time, saying that Lebanon will not be left on its own from France. But as we all know, with kind of colonial powers sometimes offering aid or support, there's always self interest involved. And in this case, for Macron and to show his kind of international prowness and his relations with Lebanon i think i know he does this in north africa mali and all of the kind of ex french colonial countries but i think a part of the lebanese state mostly the christians see france as their kind of benefactor big brother that's always going to support them some other lebanese don't feel as much some feel More allegiance to Iran, the Shias, and some others, the Sunnis, to Saudi Arabia. So it also connects to the bigger problem in Lebanon, where people have allegiances to other regional and uh, global powers, as opposed to having a kind of a commitment and allegiance to their state.
2: Last year, Lebanon made a pact with Israel to exploit some of the natural gas in its Qana'a field offshore which was unprecedented for a country that is still partially occupied by its southern neighbor. How did this accord come about, and what does it say about the evolving relationship between the two countries? Technically, they're still at war, if I'm not mistaken, with occasional regular skirmishes between Hezbollah and the Israeli forces.
1: The pact isn't really a, a pact. It's more of an agreement to draw, first of all, the maritime borders between Israel, and Lebanon in order for Israel to exploit its gas resources to the south and the Lebanese to exploit and their gas and oil sources in the Mediterranean, in the eastern Mediterranean on their side of the border. So that maritime border wasn't there. And the United States played the role of negotiating that uh, deal indirectly. So the Lebanese side did not speak to the Israeli side. And you're right in saying that they're still technically at war. They are definitely at war. The Lebanese don't recognize the Israeli state. And uh, the Israeli state still occupies parts of South Lebanon, Shaba farms and such. So there's still ongoing problems with Israel. There's uh, still drone overflies by the Israelis to spy on Hezbollah, but to spy on the Lebanese state in general. Israel still flies over Lebanon to go bomb Syria as it did this week a couple of times, actually. So the issue around oil and gas, I think, is somewhat minor in the big picture of things as far as Lebanon and Israel. Unfortunately, Lebanon still hasn't been able to exploit or continue its excavation of its side of the maritime border, but Israel has already started pumping gas from its side.
2: Ryan, there's a final question. And at the end of of the question, I'd like you maybe to give us some idea of what you think might be a a way towards a solution. How do you get out of this conundrum of the confessional straitjacket? Much has been made of the confessional fragmentation of Lebanon as a major source of all its problems, and especially the Christian versus Muslim, the Shia versus Sunni divides, divisions that former colonial powers exacerbated and manipulated. And certainly Lebanon has a remarkable diversity of religious faiths for a population that small. But seeing the rest of the Middle East equally fragmented along not only religious, but often ethnic and linguistic lines as well, is sort of a chicken and egg question. One has to wonder whether Lebanon is divided because of its diversity of faiths, or perhaps is it the other way around, divided because of a natural tendency towards plurality, versatility, autonomy. Reading a book by Lebanese best-selling author, Amine Malouf, for example, I don't know if you've read it in French, the title is Origine, Origins, where he tells the story of his uh, grand-uncle who ended up in Cuba becoming a big businessman there. I was struck by the story of his small native village high in the mountains of Lebanon where not not one, not two, but three rival Christian churches (laughs) were vying for prominence in a small village of 3,000 souls. In other words, can Lebanon's sociopolitical problems be entirely explained away by its confessional diversity Or is there something deeper at work here that somehow people are, they're fractious, they create their own different realities and cultures and religions?
1: It's easy to kind of go towards orientalist type of explanation around the tribalism Mm. that exists in our Arab countries sometimes. Some of it is based on old clans and uh, tribes and having allegiance to the leaders of the communities. But at the same time, as a progressive Arab thinking person, I would like to think that these aren't entrenched social and political ideas that can't be overcome. But I also know that even colonialism and modern intervention by the West has exasperated the sectarian nature of some of these countries. We look at what happened in Iraq after the occupation of of Iraq is a perfect example where the United States went in and instituted a sectarian system and it created civil wars between Iraqis for many years. It helped produce ISIS and other extremist groups in Iraq as a result. So some of that is from the outside. Some of it, like you said, might be part of the social history, but I'm a anti-Orientalist, and I know that development happens, that humans are able to organize themselves in more egalitarian ways and more democratic ways, and, and the Arabs are no different.
2: I'm with you. It's just that sometimes in the depth of these crises, you start wondering whether perhaps this modern or this recent concept of nation-state is not necessarily applicable at least at the moment you start to ask questions.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you begin to kind of think what are the alternatives to the existing kind of state systems that are so dysfunctional. We can all dream about more equal societies economically, politically, and socially in the Arab world, because there's a lot of inequality in the region where you have oil producing countries in the Gulf uh, that have all the money and all the wealth and then you have other countries that don't have as much resources. So this kind of inequality within the region, within the Arab-speaking region, uh, let's say, I think is going to create problems. The lack of democracy, also the existing dictatorships and monarchies that are still there, they affect the region, they affect countries like Lebanon. So I would connect the dysfunctionality also to regional inequality and the lack of cooperation within the Arab countries. And there is Western intervention and outside intervention that wouldn't want those countries to cooperate because it would cause problems for some of their allies would cause problems for Mm -hmm. Israel, for example. So it doesn't always serve the U.S.'s interests, which still has a lot of power in the Middle East, even though... We see it slipping in recent years. The United States doesn't have as much leeway in the Middle East. We saw China just put together an agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and the United States had no role in it, and it doesn't work for the interest of the United States. So I'm sure the United States isn't happy about that agreement that the Chinese were able to put together. And there's obviously a change or a shift in power with China and other countries, even regional countries like Turkey and Iran, having more say in the Middle East than the United States. That wasn't the situation a couple of decades ago. The United States has bases in the region Qatar or in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain, of course, the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. So the United States still has a lot of military power and a big. Footprint in the Middle East, but that's seen as also changing, and it's changing very quickly where other powers are able to kind of shift things in the region politically.
0: Ryan El Amin is a lecturer at San Francisco State University and an analyst in Middle East Studies and International Affairs. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
2: April is National Poetry Month, and this week we bring you some of the poetry of the Middle East's most celebrated contemporary poet, Palestinian Mahmoud Darwish, translated and read by Iraqi poet Sinan Antoun, as well as poems from a book entitled, Unfortunately, It Was Paradise. Sinan Antoun's co-translation of, Unfortunately, It Was Paradise, was nominated for the PEN Prize for Translation in 2004. Mm-hmm.
3: Think of others. As you prepare your breakfast, think of others. Do not forget what doves eat. As you wage your wars, think of others. Do not forget those who seek peace. As you pay the water bill, think of others, those who are breastfed by clouds. As you return home, your home, think of others. Do not forget those who live in tents. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others. There are those who cannot find space to sleep. As you free yourself with metaphors, think of others, those who lost their right to speak. As you think of distant others, think of yourself and say, I wish I were a candle in the dark. I thought that I had died on Saturday. So I said, I must stipulate something in my will. I did not find anything. I said, I have to invite a friend to tell him that I am dead. But I did not find anyone. I said, I must go to my grave to fill it. But I did not find the way, and my grave remained empty. I said, I must do what I must write the last line on shades but the water spilled onto the letters I said I must do something here and now but I did not find an act worthy of a dead man I screamed this death has no meaning absurdity and chaos in the senses I will not believe that I have died a full death perhaps I am somewhere in between perhaps I am a retired dead man spending his short vacation in life mercy bullet I am jealous of the horse when its leg is broken and it feels the insult of its inability to attack and retreat in the wind they treat it with the mercy bullet. As for me, if something is broken in me, physical or moral, I ask that a professional killer be found. Even if he is one of my enemies, I will pay him his fees and the bullet's cost. I will kiss his hand and the gun, and if I can write, I will praise him with a precious poem and he would choose the rhyme and the meter. With shyness With shyness, I listen to an old song on a scratched record With shyness, I smell the scent of a rose that is not mine With shyness, I scratch a body part With shyness, I use my five senses With shyness, I succumb to my sixth sense With shyness, I live as if I am the guest of a gypsy who is about to depart. In Jerusalem, I mean inside the old wall. I walk from one epoch to another, without a memory to correct me. There, prophets share the history of the sacred, They ascend to the heavens and return less crestfallen and less sad. Love and peace are sacred and coming to the city. I was walking over a slope and thinking, how can narrators disagree on the light's speech in a stone? Do wars break out because of a stone's dim light? I walk in my sleep, I gaze in my sleep. I see no one behind or before me. All this light is for me I walk run fly and become someone else in the manifestation words bloom like grass from Isaiah's prophetic mouth you will not be safe unless you believe I walk as if I am someone else my wound is a white evangelical flower my hands two doves on the cross flying and carrying the earth I don't walk I fly and become someone else. There is no place and no time. Who am I? I am not I in the presence of the ascent. But I think only the Prophet spoke classical Arabic. What else? What else? A female soldier shouts suddenly, It is you again. Didn't I kill you? I said, You killed me. And like you, I forgot to die. There is no city in the city, no here except there, and no there except here. The poem is called The Butterfly Effect, which is the um, same title of his last collection published in 2008. أثر الفراشة أثر الفراشة la yura. أثر الفراشة لا يزول هو جاذبية غامض يستدرج المعنى ويرحل حين يتضح السبيل هو خفة الأبدي في اليومي أشواق إلى أعلى وإشراق جميل هو شامة في الضوء تومئ حين يرشدنا إلى الكلمات باطننا الدليل هو مثله اغنيه تحاول ان تقول وتكتفي بالاقتباس من الضلال ولا تقول اثر الفراشة لا يرى اثر الفراشة لا يزول. I belong there by Mahmoud Darwish translated by Carolyn Forché and Munir al akish I belong there i have many memories i was born as everyone is born i have a mother a house with many windows brothers friends and a prison cell with a chilly window i have a wave snatched by seagulls a panorama of my own i have a saturated meadow in the deep horizon of my word i have a moon a bird's sustenance, and an immortal olive tree. I have lived on the land long before swords turned man into prey. I belong there. When heaven mourns for her mother, I return heaven to her mother. And I cry so that a returning cloud might carry my tears. To break the rules, I have learned all the words needed for a trial by blood. I have learned and dismantled all the words in order to draw from them a single word, home.
2: That was Sinan Antun reading the poem, I Belong There, from Unfortunately It Was Paradise. Selected Poems of Mahmoud Darwish. Sinan Atun's co-translation of Unfortunately It Was Paradise was nominated for the Penn Prize for Translation in 2004. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.